Well, good morning. Take your Bibles out and turn to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel. My name is Colby. I'm one of the pastors here at Pillar Church, and it's so good to see many of you. We actually have a lot of guests from out of town uh, in and lots of people traveling, and so it's a really different crew out here this morning, but it's great to see all of your faces, and welcome to all those who are with us for the first time, either temporarily or hopefully that are becoming a part of our family. Uh, we are in the middle of a series on birth stories from the Old Testament as we prepare to celebrate the birth of Christ. And we're going to read the whole of 1 Samuel chapter 1 in a moment. It is a lengthy passage, so it'd be best if you just opened up God's Word and we can read it so we can get familiar with what's going on in chapter 1. And then I'm going to take some time and explain it to us this morning and help us begin to celebrate Christmas as we head into this week of celebration. So 1 Samuel chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. There was a certain man of Ramathiam Zophim of the hill country of Ephraim, whose name was Elkanah, the son of Jeroham, son of Elihu, son of Tohu, son of Zuf, an Ephrathite. He had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Peninnah. And Peninnah had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man used to go up year by year from his city to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts at Shiloh, where the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests of the Lord. On the day when Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Peninnah, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah he gave a double portion, because he loved her, though the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival used to provoke her grievously to irritate her, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it went on year by year. As often as she went up to the house of the Lord, she used to provoke her. Therefore Hannah wept and would not eat. And Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not more to you than ten sons? And they, and they had eaten and drunken in Shiloh, when they had, Hannah arose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. As she continued praying before the Lord, Eli observed her mouth. Hannah was speaking in her heart. Only her lips moved and her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli took her to be a drunken woman. And Eli said to her, How long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah answered, No, my Lord, I'm a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. Do not regard your servant as a worthless woman, for all along I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. Then Eli answered, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. They rose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Anna his wife, 
and the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. The man, Elkanah, and all his house went up to offer to the Lord yearly sacrifice and to pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, As soon as the child is weaned, I will bring him, so that he may appear in the presence of the Lord and dwell there forever. Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him, only may the Lord establish his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. And when she had weaned him, she took him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and she brought him to the house of the Lord at Shiloh. And the child was young. There then they slaughtered the bull, and they brought the child to Eli. And she said, O my Lord, as you live, my Lord, I am the woman who is standing here in your presence praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition that I made to him. Therefore I have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he is lent to the Lord. And he worshiped the Lord there. Father, thank you for your word. We pray that as we consider these things that you would help us to see, Lord, the way your work continues, even in the midst of circumstances where you seem to be hidden. Lord, that even as we wait on your provision and portion for our life, Lord, that we would have faith and trust in the promises of your kingdom and the giving of your son. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. My own birth story is a bit of a dramatic one. Uh, You know, I'm a third child, and, you know, by the time you get to a third child, you forget all the details, right? You can tell me the first one that was born and what happened, and the second one. The third ones don't get scrapbooks. They don't get baby books, and nobody remembers how it all went down. But God saw fit to give me a dramatic entry into the world so that I could at least be remembered at the beginning, and, uh, you know, I I lived in a very rural place, grew up in a rural place, and when my mother was pregnant with me and ready to give birth, they went to the most just, like, core rural place you can go, the county fair. I don't know if you've ever been to a summer county fair in Pennsylvania or any other state, but they are a glorious display of culture. So what was going on that night at the county fair wasn't just sort of popcorn and rides. They had Jimmy Chitwood, who was like an evil Knievel of his day, who was a trick driver. And Jimmy Chitwood was at the McKean Potter County Fair. And that night, while all the festivities were going on, my mom was very pregnant. It was August 8th, 1979. And in the midst of that, there was a backfire, explosion, loud noise associated with this big event, and my mom went into labor. There in the midst of the crowd, she knew that the time had come. They went and they found the car. My dad tore out of the the parking lot with two other children in tow and began heading for the hospital and got stopped by the police. And the police gave me an escort, if the story's true. I like that version of it. But eventually, I was born in the morning of August 9th, 1979. 
Regardless of the bit of drama, I've never really been able to work out any real connection or foreshadowing of those events to the rest of my life. But in Scripture, particularly in the Old Testament, we regularly see that the advancement of God's plan of salvation is most often marked by an unlikely birth of a son. These births are like a new beginning in what God is doing to bring his promise. These birth star stories, they, they mark the Old Testament like time, and they often come with significant events surrounding the birth of a son, upon which God begins to do something that the people hadn't expected. In past times, I've explained it even here as a bit of an overture. It's like the music that prepares us to recognize that God is advancing his plan of salvation, his purpose of his kingdom, when we see the unique birth of a son announced and, and given to us in Scripture. God is moving and God is working. These births are like a reminder that no matter how dark or dismal the circumstances may appear to be around us, God is not finished and still has a purpose. Well, if we're here reading the book of 1 Samuel, probably the events took place around 1000 AD or so, and the people that would have then received these events in this written form, the book of 1 and 2 Samuel bound together, the people that would have heard this narration for the first time, of which we only read a chapter, received this put-together history of the book of Samuel, these people needed to be reminded to seek the Lord. This book was given, First and Second Samuel, to a group of people in difficult circumstances that needed to be reminded that it was worthwhile for them to set their hearts on seeking the Lord. Although the events take place covering the beginning of Israel, and they cover in First and Second Samuel the way that you, this united national history of Israel comes together around 1000 BC, the telling of this story is later collected by a narrator who is communicating it to a time later in Israel's history when he wants to explain the significance of these events to a people that often have to be explained even the basic cultural things that are going on during that time. And it's being explained to a group of people who live in a divided kingdom, maybe even exiled from this, this period of time. It's, it's during a time in Israel's history later when they've been divided, weakened by poor spiritual leadership, and permeating sin on every level. The hope of being a united people gathered around God's purpose for them, among whom God's presence and blessing dwells in a special way, who are experiencing the power of his word to guide them, would have seemed like a barren hope to the people who received this story. The idea that, that God had a special purpose for Israel, and he had gathered them, and he was in the midst of them blessing, that would have just seemed like a far-gone old promise that had been forgotten. They were like a barren people. But into the midst of this, God is working. Something to note is their political and religious leaders were consistently devoid of genuine spiritual concern. And as a result, the greatest portion of the people were wrapped up in pagan worship and idolatry like the other nations around them. 
even to the point of child sacrifice, as the prophet Jeremiah would later speak against them for participating in. This is, this is the spiritual condition of the people who would receive these words. And so we want to ask, here as we get this birth story, speaking into circumstances like that, what is God saying? What is God saying to the person who might be asking, is it even worth seeking the Lord at all when we've seen this big of a disaster in our national history, this spiritual climate where God seems so absent and so far away? Do we have any reason to believe that God would welcome us back and still fulfill his purpose for us, that we matter to the Lord? Or are our hopes barren and forgotten? like Hannah's hopes for a son. So for those who desired to remain faithful to the Lord and seek him, was there any reason to maintain hope and persevere in seeking him and trusting the promise of his salvation? That's the question this book asks, and that's what we see here answered in chapter 1. Or is that a barren hope? Well, the beginning of the answer to that question was found in the birth of a son through God's blessing to an unlikely barren woman. And that birth reminds us today that we have a reason to seek the Lord. And I want to show you in a few ways as we walk through this text that we have a reason to seek the Lord today. We have a reason just like the people in that moment had to seek the Lord, and this first chapter lays out who God is and why we should be confident to draw near to him no matter what the circumstances of our life have been and no matter today how far away from him you may feel. We have a reason to seek the Lord. So this birth story is an invitation to seek the Lord today and particularly as we think about Christmas, that we would be drawn to be a people who seek the Lord with confidence. Let me show you the ways that it invites us to do that. The first way we see it in the text is we discover in the first nine verses that the Lord is worth seeking. We're reminded in these verses that the Lord is worth seeking. Particularly the way it rolls out to us, we discover that a double portion of the favor of man cannot satisfy the need for favor with God. You see, a double portion of favor with man cannot satisfy the need in the story and in our lives for the favor of God on our life. In the text, let's let's just look closely at a few things about how this story begins. Look with me in verses 1 and 2. In verses 1 and 2, we get these names and this sort of background history of the family. It's set up in an interesting way. They introduce us to this woman, Hannah, right? Hannah, who is in what appears to be a particularly hopeless situation. She's one of two wives of a man named Elkanah, and she's barren. She's mentioned first, so it is likely she was the first of the wives and unable to produce children, and so another wife was sought who was able to, and she did. Side note, despite the prevalence of polygamy in the Old Testament and in ancient cultures that surrounded Israel, there's explicit instruction about marriage in the Pentateuch. For marriage is pictured in the Pentateuch as a covenant between one man and one woman. The first polygamous husband in Genesis is one of the most wicked men mentioned in the book of Genesis. The result of polygamy in the Old Testament always ends up in some sort of destructive mode and implies its destructive nature. And in Deuteronomy 17... 
Israel's kings are forbidden to have multiple wives. And so, so every time we see polygamy in the, in the Old Testament, we should ask the question, what's broken here? What is it trying to show us about what the people are trying to do to accomplish what God has promised to accomplish in their life? Hannah is replaced by this other woman because she's barren. So th- there seems to be a bit more to it, though, than just a story about a woman. This little scenario and introduction is actually a microcosm, a little replay of the faith journey of Israel's history, of their people. As was spoken of a few weeks ago, if you think about it, we've got a barren woman who wants a child but doesn't seem to be able to have one and knows that it's going to be the Lord that's going to give it to her if she's going to have it. Only he could grant her this prayer. When Abraham, if we rewind, where God makes the promise to bring salvation through this people, when Abraham and Sarah struggled to believe God would keep his promise of giving them a son, they turned to their own schemes to fulfill that promise for themselves. They thought that they could accomplish spiritually a promise that only God could ultimately give them. And so they, they, they go outside of God's plan and purpose to try to give themselves what only they should have sought for from the Lord. This is Israel's history. This is Israel's founding father. Abraham takes another wife, contrary to seeking the Lord and waiting on his provision. And so the scenario itself is asking a people who have been produced now as the offspring of God, actually later than fulfilling the promise to Abraham that he had originally made, why they won't wait on the Lord. And even through this story, Elkanah doesn't wait on the Lord. He replaces the barren woman. So the scenario itself is asking a people who have been produced by God's promise why they've been so foolish and why they won't now turn to trust the Lord and seek seek the Lord for their own spiritual renewal even now as they are like a barren people spiritually. But it doesn't stop there. It sets us up to see this as a story about Israel and not just about Hannah as their spiritual condition of barrenness and hopelessness unless God produces and births something new in them. But it even shows us even further through Hannah in verses 3 through 8 that, that Hannah continued to seek the Lord for what was truly good and provided by him in this situation despite the appearance of hopelessness. So what we see then from Hannah in verses 3 through 8 is that Hannah continues to seek the Lord in this situation. She's also discouraged and ridiculed by the other woman, not supported, to the point that it says that she would purposefully irritate her for her loss. In these verses then, we see that they would go up to Shiloh, which was the center of Israel's worship during this time, before the temple was built, where the tabernacle would have been set, where the Ark of the Covenant dwelled, the symbol of God's presence, where they would draw together to worship the Lord on a regular basis, often in a holiday-like atmosphere, where they would come and they would celebrate together, they would eat food before the Lord, and, and they would celebrate His provision. And during these times, we're told about what it was like for Hannah to go up to that place. They would go up there and in a holiday-like spirit, and her husband would give her a double portion of provision to celebrate, hoping it would make up for what she was waiting on the Lord for. Did you see that when, he, when it said that, the, that He gave her a double portion, but she was never satisfied? 
Verse 5, he would give double portions to Hannah, but notice how the story is arranged. Hannah is not satisfied with the double portion of man, but rather seeks what she knows only the Lord can give that would really satisfy her. Verse 7 shows how much she valued it. For when they would go to Shiloh, she would go to the house of the Lord and seek him, even though it brought on ridicule from the other wife. The other wife mocked her that she would even still still seeking. You have to picture it. They're there celebrating, but Hannah pulls away while all the celebrating goes, and she goes to the tabernacle to pray and ask the Lord to hear her cry. And as that's going on, the other woman, Peninnah, what do you think you're doing? He's never going to hear you. It's obvious he's rejected you. She's mocked and she's ridiculed, but it says year after year she would go up and she would seek the Lord in this particular, this particular time. She does that. So let's zoom out for a second. So to the faithful person in Israel, in the midst of a disastrous set of circumstances, spiritual disaster, national disaster, to the faithful person in Israel reading these words, the intro is, is inviting them to see the answer to the question, is it really worth seeking the Lord? Is it worth it for me, just as a solitary individual, to seek the Lord, asking for his blessing and favor and provision? Does it even matter? It's asking that question. Despite long periods of waiting and hope, even when it seems that those who surround you ridicule you for having such a hope. And the answer is, listen, don't let a double portion of what anyone in this world has to offer distract you from pursuing what the Lord alone can give. That's the answer that the, the writer wants them to hear. Listen, how, how amazing this is for us to hear. A double portion of what we already have, of what we've been able to give to ourselves, a double portion of whatever others could offer us or what we could go and purchase for ourselves is not the thing that is going to satisfy that forever eternal deep longing, that, that nagging sense that we're missing something, that we're, we're dead to something that we're supposed to be alive to. That cannot be satisfied by a double portion of what the world has to offer, not this season or any season. And we shouldn't settle it. We shouldn't settle for that, but we should seek the Lord for his portion. This is the application. The Lord is worthy of our seeking above everything in this world. Now to be clear, it's not always the case that the Lord gives us the exact thing that we think we should get when we pray and seek and ask. But if we will not settle for a life apart from Him that we just give to ourselves... <laughs> And we will seek him for his presence and his answer and his provision and his purpose for our life. That God can give birth today in your life to something new that you thought was dead and didn't have a chance anymore. And in all of your dissatisfied pursuit of what you thought would matter today, God is still worth seeking. He is still worth seeking. And if we'll not settle for life apart from him, 
and give ourselves to desiring the portion of the Lord, to desiring Him, even when it seems that those who surround you ridicule you for having such hope. You'll discover the Lord is worthy of our seeking even when there's a great deal of waiting for His portion. And He's the only one that truly satisfies the longings of our heart. A double portion of what you already have will not. That's the first thing we see. The first thing this passage wants us to see is that the Lord is worth seeking. There's something to be had by drawing near to the Lord. His blessing is worth pursuing. His transforming work, His renewal, His answer, no matter how long we wait, is worth pursuing. So we see that. That's great to know that the Lord is worth pursuing, but the question is, is He willing to respond when we draw near to Him? And this passage answers that question as well. The second thing we see in this passage is that the Lord is willing to, to respond. We see it in verses 9 through 20 as the story continues. The Lord does not withhold himself from the sincere seeker, even when sin prevails around us. And it doesn't matter what anyone else is doing, what any other group of people is doing, what's going on in the circumstances around you. The one who sincerely seeks the Lord for him and what he alone can give has hope because we have a God who responds to sincere seekers. Verses 9-11 show us a woman who is pursuing the Lord with sincerity of heart. Look how it shows us Hannah here. After they had eaten and drunk in Shiloh, Hannah rose. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat beside the doorpost of the temple of the Lord, and she was deeply distressed, and she goes and she prays to the Lord. She wept bitterly. She vows a vow. And we begin to see that her heart here isn't just about having a son, but through this son to offer him to the Lord. That, that this would be an act of worship, of producing and caring for and dedicating this child to the Lord. She vows a vow, O Lord of, the ho- Lord of hosts, if you will look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. This isn't about just her benefit and blessing, but about God being honored and worshipped through her life. She's seeking him sincerely. Notice she prays from a deep place of longing. She's distressed and crying out to the Lord. She goes to the temple and is praying. She doesn't allow her disappointment to drive her away. She draws near to the Lord. And I wonder, I wonder here today if the waiting on what you believe is God's good thing in your life, of what's God's best in your life, if the waiting on God's provision in your life has left you in a place of discouragement and you're wondering is he willing to respond listen this place of desperation most often produces sincere seeking i think one of the things that we have to come to grips with is we on a surface level often want god's blessing without the transformation that allows us to take that thing that god would give us and make it about his glory We're often pursuing things just for us 
And what God often does in those times, those times of waiting and longing and desperation, is he brings us to a place where it's not just about us getting what we want, but where we can finally begin to hear what God wants. And to be a part of what he desires to do. And so, so maybe you're in a place of longing. Maybe you're in a place of distress. Maybe you are in a place of anxiety and despair and discouragement. And today you need to hear and be reminded that the Lord is working. He's transforming your desires until those desires become not just Lord bless me, but Lord, I want what you desire. Give this good thing that I may worship you, that it could glorify you, that it can be given back to you as worship and not spent on myself. So we see she does so, not just so she can have a son, but that she might have a son to dedicate to the Lord and his service. This is not just self-promotion or self-soothing. This is about worship. She desires a son which was a blessing of God to pursue. And it's setting us up to recognize here what sincere seeking looks like. Then in the next portion of verses in 12 through 18, we see something odd. Eli the priest sees her and assumes she's just a drunk. Now, I kind of thought about that for a while this week. Why, why is this part of the account kind of put here for us? What's going on? He accuses her. See, first couple of verses there in 12 and 13. Eli takes her to be a drunken woman, end of 13. Says to her, how long will you go on being drunk? Put away your wine from you. It's kind of interesting. He accuses, here's the highest spiritual leader in Israel. You have a broken, discouraged, sincere woman seeking the Lord. He doesn't even notice what that looks like. Like it's been, it's been so long since somebody just really wanted God. <laughs> like poured themselves out. <laughs> and wanted it more than just a surface additional blessing. <laughs> Was weeping and praying. And didn't want to settle for anything else. It had been so long since he had seen it. He didn't even know what it looked like. Like real spiritual longing for God. Eli, the spiritual leader just takes it to be just drunkenness that's the spiritual leadership this is the highest priest in the land he doesn't recognize the seeking of a contrite heart now this accusing and dismissive response by the spiritual leader is not accidental it's representative of the state of affairs the nation's in when the spiritual leadership is that sensitive to sincere devotion to the lord you're in a world of hurt those reading this introduction would have been facing much the same problem. A spiritual leadership that wouldn't know sincere seeking of the Lord if it saw it. And that had twisted the religious system for its own gain. This is the state. You know, uh, the religious system's all twisted up <laughs> for its own gain. Eli is given control over to his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who are just straight up wicked. And so even those who would come to the place of seeking the Lord, where the spiritual leadership was, who was to facilitate that and represent the Lord to them and, and represent them to the Lord, you just had wickedness in the institutions of spiritual leadership. And that's what the people reading this book would have been facing. A religious system twisted for its own gain. Leaders who didn't know what 
authentic spirituality even look like? But here's the point of all this. In the midst of that, the Lord is willing to receive a sincere, seeking, barren woman who, for all intents and purposes, is a nobody. And the Lord is hearing her prayers. Despite the fact that the spiritual leader doesn't even know what's going on. Eli and his sons will die a few chapters later. But God is willing to receive sincere seekers even when the structures and leaders of our spiritual institutions have failed us. They'll die a few chapters later. The Ark of the Covenant, God's symbol at Shiloh, of his promise to bring salvation to his people would be stolen. God would bring judgment on the people of Israel. And even as that is happening, the Lord hasn't abandoned this barren woman of faith as she comes to seek him. She hears him. He hears her. His portion for her is not dependent on leaders and institutions. You see, God's portion for Hannah isn't dependent on the health of spiritual leaders, the faithfulness of spiritual institutions. He can hear the sincere seeker and turns his ear no matter what the circumstances are. And he keeps his faithful promises to those who will seek him as their portion. Now, this is good news for us. There are a couple simple, ap- simple applications here for us. First, don't be surprised when spiritual leaders and institutions let you down or fail you. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised by that. I mean, honestly, as someone in a spiritual leadership role in a spiritual institution, this is troubling to me. That the reality is that our leaders and institution can be a hindrance to the sincere seeking of individuals who just want to know the Lord. But listen, we can be reminded that despite what happens in institutions and despite what happens among those we may look to for spiritual leadership, that the Lord's ear is always available to the one who comes and sincerely seeks Him. The Lord has his ear tuned to this poor, barren woman. Maybe you've experienced disappointment in churches or people you respected. Maybe you've expected more from leaders and institutions in your life than you've gotten. But even in the midst of their failure, the Lord is willing to hear your plea to him and your seeking for a life that honors him and is filled with his purpose and blessing. The Lord is willing to respond. So we certainly get that from here. The second thing I think we can get out of this section is that we need to examine what it is we're seeking the Lord for and trust that he is willing to give you what he knows is good. Set your hope on him with sincerity and devote yourself to him in a fresh way because the Lord is willing to respond. So we have this invitation in this passage already in this story that the Lord is worth pursuing and seeking, that the Lord is willing to respond no matter the circumstances to the one who longs for him, who sincerely seeks after him. But we end the passage by seeing another promise and another hope, and it's that the Lord is working to fulfill his promises. The Lord is working to fulfill his promises. Even when it may seem hidden, God is working out his purposes to bring salvation and hope to his people. How do verses 21 through 28 show us that? 
Well, of course, Samuel's born, right? I mean, that's a, that's a big celebration. We get Samuel is born. Hannah raises him and, he, and waits to bring him to the temple until he's ready to serve there. We don't get all the details, but he's given a place of permanent service there as a fulfillment of her vow to the Lord. We even get the sense that she leaves him there really young, which, I mean, I, 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 if you're a parent, it prompts a lot of questions, right? You're like, how did that work? Was there child care? You know, like, must have had a really good children's ministry at the tabernacle. Now, I mean, we don't get all those kinds of questions answered, but I think, I think the point and the reason that it's there is that from his earliest days and moments that it was possible for her to keep her vow, she, she devotes this boy to the Lord's service. See that happening? She fulfills her vow. She's faithful. The Lord provides, and she's faithful to respond as well. But let me put its significance in the backdrop of what God is doing here. Israel, at this time, is coming out of the period of the Judges. It's a disconnected collection of 12 tribes who, because of the lack of spiritual leadership and faithfulness to the Lord, have never really kept their side of the covenant with God. They've never kept God's covenant to live as a people that are like a kingdom of priests to the nations around them where God's word is available and his work is on display. They've never, they've never kept their side. But despite their failure, they're also a people of promise. God has promised that through this people, he will fulfill bringing salvation through sending his son. But this people, they're, they're under a period of time historically of threat. I mean, not united, scattered among a bunch of other nations. The likelihood, if that continues, of them just sort of being dissolved and swallowed up among those people is very high. And there's no existing leadership to turn the tide. That's not likely to happen. But despite their failure, there are people of promise. There are a family of people through whom God promised to bring salvation, through whom he would send a savior that would not just lead and judge, but rescue them from sin and all of its effects, who would be a blessing not just to them, but to the nations around him. That's the promise that they're that people whom God has chosen to bring his savior through. But at this point, they're splintering out of control threatened by the nations around them. Their spiritual leadership is in disarray and unfaithful. Eli is bad, but his sons who will take over for him are really evil. And a few chapters later, they're all going to die. The hope of spiritual life and salvation during this time that blesses the nations coming out of Israel looks like a barren hope. Barren and grim. But here, notice what's happening. Here, while everything is falling apart, through the birth of a son to an unlikely woman, God is positioning a spiritual leader who will usher in a powerful period of renewal and blessing. You see, it never ends up just being about Hannah having a son. God is giving them the leader that they need and the one they don't deserve so that he can keep the promise that he made. You see, what's happening here is God is keeping his promise. His word will return to his people through Samuel. They lived in this period of time where it was silent, but we see that a few chapters later, Samuel is in the tabernacle of the Lord and he hears the word of the Lord. The Lord gives his word to Samuel in a special 
way and it blesses Israel with the presence of God's purpose and power in their midst. The kingdom of Israel during this time in 1 and 2 Samuel will be strengthened and established and unified instead of swallowed up into the nations around them and forgotten. And through this son, Samuel, God is giving them what they can never give themselves, the ongoing guarantee of his promised salvation. So here at the end of chapter 1, Samuel is in position. That's what's happening. Samuel is in position. He's at the center of spiritual and political leadership among the people. And so Hannah has seen that her pursuit has put Samuel there, and she sings a song. Now, we didn't read it this morning, but if you flip over to chapter 2 on your own, you'll read where Hannah celebrates the significance of what she sees going on as God has answered her prayer. It's a poem, it's a song, and it celebrates God's giving over of his power to those who appear to be weak, that God often shows up when things appear to be dark, that his light shines into darkness, and even when he seems to be silent, he's always at work. And here, in the midst of this story, in a dark period of Israel's history, he's positioned Samuel a little child, right where he needs to be to keep God's promise. So almost a thousand years later, when Mary is told she will have a child under even more impossible circumstances, the echoes of this promise are still there, that God is working to bring salvation to his people even when they can't bring themselves to seek him. Even when they're not ready and, and, and those who will be faithful can be a part of joining in God's favorable work of bringing his salvation. Hannah becomes someone who's a part of, of God's work of fulfilling his promise. And, and regardless of what was going on in the leadership and in the institutions, Hannah gets to be a part of God's kingdom work as she trusts the Lord and seek him. Because God is never, his, he never stops working no matter how things look. And when Mary visits Elizabeth and God has confirmed that she will give birth to the Savior, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, while Israel has failed and its spiritual leaders are compromised during that time and in disarray, God has kept his long-awaited promise. And Mary knows it. And she takes Hannah's song and she rewrites it for Jesus. Because what she sees is the same thing that God was doing <laughs> where he shows up with a son in the middle of a dark period and keeps his promise. He's now fulfilling as Mary shows up and gives birth to a son given by God in an even more powerful and distinct way. God's salvation is at hand. And it may not look like God's been up to much. But he's kept his promise. Because of that, we have hope. Because of that, his salvation is secure and guaranteed. And we're invited to come seek him, that we can know the eternal blessings of God. You see, the Christmas story and these birth stories from the Old Testament call us to seek the Lord and to wait on him, to be confident that the Lord is worthy 
and willing and working for our salvation. How do we know? How do we know? What, what promise and guarantee do we have? Well, Hannah did something remarkable with her son Samuel. She gave him up to the Lord to serve in the temple. She gave up her son that the people of Israel might know the promise of their salvation was dependent on God and not on them. But when it was time for that salvation to be made reality, God himself would not just give his son up to live a life of devotion, but we see that Jesus came to die a death of devotion. He died his death on the cross for us, a people that had forsaken God and could not give ourselves the spiritual life that we so long for. We are the barren ones, dead in our trespasses and sin. If we will turn to Christ, even in the midst of our spiritually dead lives, hope can be born in us. And God's promise renewed and fulfilled. And if you've ever never understood the core message of the Bible, it's this very message of hope and salvation that God keeps his promise and through sending his son in a time when we didn't even know we needed it into the midst of our broken and barren lives, God has shown us that no matter where we're at, if we will seek him, he will fulfill his promise in us. This is the hope of the gospel, and Jesus has guaranteed it through his death. Not just a life of devotion. Hannah gave a son to live in the temple, and God gave a son to die the sacrificial death that that temple pointed to. So that by faith, we could lay our hands on that promise, and it be counted on our behalf. And it's a really simple invitation that God gives us, that today, no matter where you're at, no matter how broken your life has been, no matter how out of order and sinful, how far from God you may feel, if by faith you'll come lay your hand on that promise, God will save you. He'll bring you into this promise of salvation, and you have every reason to hope and wait on Him to fulfill all that comes with it. And if you've never understood that you can't work your way there, you're barren and you need God to act, here's what you need to know. God has acted and he invites you now to seek him so that he can pour out his favor and blessing and spirit on your life and you can know the living God and experience the fullness of his presence this Christmas. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord, we thank you for the promise of your salvation and even now as we come, to share in the broken bread in the cup, Lord, would you overwhelm us with your kindness and grace? Lord, would you remind us deeply in this moment that you desire for us to seek you with all of our heart, and Lord, that your promises are steadfast and sure, that you have given your son so that we could have the guarantee of hope and salvation. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Listen to